Have you ever thought about what happens when people who are at their most vulnerable, people who might be struggling with an episode of complex mental illness, which is making their ability to rationalise reality next to impossible, what happens when people who are in that situation come into contact with the legal, judicial and housing systems in our country? Systems which might not be able to absorb or correctly help a person who's in that situation. And each intervention with those systems might even send that vulnerable person further down the vortex of illness as their life becomes more and more and more difficult. It's okay if you haven't thought about that, because Sarah Krasnerstein has. She's my guest this week. She's not only a lawyer with a deep knowledge of people who are in just the situation I've described, she's also an author whose work explores the lives of the most vulnerable Australians in our community. We're going to get to Sarah in just a moment. As I'm sure you're aware, podcasts are free to listen to, mostly, but they're not free to make. So I have to play some ads to pay the people, the wonderful people who make this show. So you might hear some ads. There's an ad-free version of this show I'll tell you about later on. But if you do hear some ads, thank you. If you don't, you'll hear Sarah say something cool. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So much of what we kind of address through different doorways is really just a question of building up a nervous system. And we don't think about that. But, you know, when we look at the old language of nervous shock or, you know, the nerves or all of these things, when we think about how even if you take out relational dysfunction or, you know, things that have happened to us in our social environments or schools or families, take all of that away. Just the world that we live in now, the effect of this constant stream of white hot information at all hours of the day, work, demands, everything, all the time, just blasts open what we were kind of equipped to deal with. So if we had more literacy around that, I think we wouldn't have so many kind of people just exhausted all the time, completely <laughs> flattened by everything and unable to deal with, you know, normal life stuff. That was lawyer and author Sarah Krasnerstein. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday. Better than yesterday. 
G'day. I'm Oshie Ginsberg. Welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. It's a podcast that is here to help make your day today better than yesterday. That's all it does. Been doing that since 2013 by having conversations with people from all walks of life, from all over the world, some of them experts in their field. Just something you hear on this show will make you go, you know what? I didn't think about it that way. And then you go about your day and then it's nighttime and it's bedtime and you, you kiss your lover on your cheek. You go, you know what? Today was a good one. Better than the one before. And that's it. That's what I've been doing. Every day, every Monday, Wednesday and Friday since 2013. Well, not Wednesdays and Fridays, but definitely every Monday since 2013. Three times a week I'm here. Mondays, Wednesdays with a guest. Fridays I'm here with you. The show got bigger. We had to put more episodes in, okay, essentially. It started as one a week and then now it's three times a week. Might even get more. Who knows? I'm Osher Ginsberg. Uh, this is my show. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm um, as well. I'm a, a lying on the floor without the willpower to leave the toddler's room, even though I said I would. And he's got to get to sleep by himself because I just, I'm fucking so tired. <laughs> I'm like, buddy, just go to sleep. But I'll, I'll wait until you fall asleep. I know the plan was that you would figure out how to do it by yourself again. Because he did, he was figuring out how to do it by himself and then went to the Gold Coast for a couple of months and then figured it out. Anyway, so wildly I'm recording this at like 10 o'clock at night. No one else is in the house except me and Wolf. But this is the time I've got to record this, so hey, here we are. And look, I'm grateful you're here. If you want to get in touch with me, it's easy. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's how you can find me. Speaking of uh, toddlers, thank you very much for checking out Dad Pod, which I make with Charlie Clawson, the great and powerful podcasting legend that is Charlie Clawson. We're two dads making a podcast by dads for dads who don't want to be shit dads. And it's fun. I really like it. And we've got some fantastic guests on this season. So uh, you can just find Dad Pod wherever you found this podcast. I'd love to tell you about my guest today. Sarah Krasnstein is a lovely human being. She was born in America. She's based in Australia. She's got a, you know, just a PhD in criminal law and is the award-winning author of the spectacular book, The Trauma Cleaner, also the book, The Believer. And her newest work is the latest in the brilliant essay series put out by Quarterly Essay. It's fantastic. It's incredible. I'm, I'm great. I'm really grateful that publication exists. Sarah's piece and quarterly essay is called Not Waving, Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. It's an intense exploration into the lives of three women and their treatment by the state when they were at their most vulnerable. The motivation to write about this came to Sarah while she was working in law and she was reading a large volume of criminal cases and just being struck by the devastatingly dysfunctional systemic issues. Sarah also has her own experiences of anxiety and, and depression and the stigma that attaches to it, which she gratefully and generously and, and gently and wonderfully explores and describes in this conversation. It's worth listening just to the way that she talks about her own brain, this extraordinary brain that's given her the life and the career that she's got and how she manages to wrangle this brain that does this thing. It's a fabulously self-aware bit of the chat, and um, I think it's extraordinary. It's a really clever model, a really beautiful modeling of what it is to kind of recognize that you and your brain are separate things, and this is what you got, and clearly you'll hear Sarah talk about it, about taking responsibility for it and then figuring out ways to work with it. Sarah's she's very uh, active. She's a writer, so goodness. Uh, you can find her on Twitter, De La Sarah, D-E-L-A-S-A-R-A-H. She's on Instagram, 
Sarah K. Wrights, S-A-R-A-H-K-W-R-I-T-E-S, and also her website, sarahkrasnerstein.com, or I'll put these all in the show notes. Thanks heaps for listening, and um, enjoy the chat. Sarah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see you. I'm grateful you're on the show. Uh, we did meet very briefly when I interviewed your husband, Charlie Pickering. Um, you came home and I realised I've been talking in for two hours and you, I think you came in with the, <laughs> you had dogs, I think, you are taking the dogs for a walk or something like yes. that. And you're like, yeah. you're still here. <laughs> he said you'd be gone by now. Like, ah, I really should probably wrap this interview up. Because he just kept talking. It was fantastic. Um, oh, it was he does do that. Really, Yeah, well, uh, it was a really great <laughs> chat and um I, you know, full disclosure, I was sitting, I sat on the board of SANE Australia for three years. Yep. Um, I had a very, very good, very good idea of where um, policy actually meant, met with, um, you know, delivery uh, and the, mm-hmm. the gap, and, you know, the giant gap between those two things. Yeah. And in many ways, policy was formulated like like many things, whether it be energy or, you know, forestry or whatever, policy is often formulated by people who don't really, you know, they're given a, a cabinet position and they're like, okay, now okay, here's two pages on forestry. Now go and figure out what trees to cut down and what trees to plant. <laughs> Are they a horticulturist? Yeah. No. If you don't have an understanding of the nuance of the problem, well, of course, you're just going to go, yeah, you know, that's enough telehealth. That'll be fine. But it isn't. <laughs> but that's all you know. So. Yeah. What's been represented as what mental health policy should be is very different to what health mental health policy needs to be, and that is because you just if you don't if you haven't experienced it or you haven't been at the mercy of um, public uh, mental health policy, you yeah. you wouldn't know. You yeah, know. that's very right. Yeah, I mean, I'm a system user myself and have been for many years, so kind of have that firsthand experience of what's not working. And it's something that kind of had been uh, eating away at me for at least 20 years. This was in the uh, kind of marinating in the back of my head. Uh, So the quarterly essay is a good format uh, for that because it's quite long and you get the chance to explore, you know, the, the issues at length and kind of, what can be said that's new about this behemoth that wherever you find yourself in Australia is catastrophic in the difference between what it's setting out to provide, which is, you know, mental health, care, treatment and support, and what is being delivered, which is like that, you know, Woody Allen joke, the food is shit and the portions are too small. So, you know, what's gone wrong, given that there's very few areas um, as formally as formally examined by governments as mental mental health. So we have all this data. We have so much you know knowledge about how to deliver these services, and we keep on screwing it up. And then we go back and we do another inquiry into what's not working. We find mm. out the same issues, and then we go we cherry pick from them or we ignore it. So that had been you know e- e- interesting to me for at least 20 years. And it was originally kind of these themes were the subject of my master's thesis in law when I was still in that uh, life. And I couldn't finish it because my my own mental health was so bad, I couldn't leave the house to get to university. So um, I'm glad that I wrote it when I did. Uh, I feel like it perhaps needed this long. I needed this long to say anything new or valuable about it. 
When you were going through that at university, and it's, it's not an uncommon time in your, I assume you were in your early 20s when that, yes. when that happened. It's not, an uncommon, it's not an uncommon time in people's lives for um, mental health issues that have otherwise kind of been uh, managed or been able to get by when it's like when a, a, you know, a new baby comes into your life suddenly with the, mm. now the extra bandwidth of whether it be uh, you know, a law degree or you know, a, a new mm. baby in the house, you, you just run out of gears. And then you find, yeah. when you you know, your brakes fail and then you're like, geez, I can't, I can't slow down. I can't stop this. And you've got no mm-hmm. coping mechanisms. Um, how, how did you navigate your way out of that? Did someone, was there an intervention? Did the, the system mm-hmm. catch you? What happened? Oh, well, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I feel like I lost my entire twenties. I lost that full decade, probably more, uh, if you, data from around 18 years old. Um, And the answer is that I eventually found my own way out by seeking a therapist who could place my symptoms in their historical context, their family systems origin. And instead of kind of being told you have, you know, severe anxiety and depression, for which the standard dosage of medication is insufficient, and all that language that is used. It was a curiosity about, uh, you know, where did this come from? And so I think that in combination with, you know, the friends and community around me, uh, the uh, person I eventually married, you know, I think building up that sense of self and, you know, the dropping gently of stories that were preservative at a certain point, but no longer served, uh, you know, you in the world. It was a very gradual process and it's still continuing. And so, you know, I'm very aware that without my ability to afford ongoing sessions above the Medicare amount, even with the additional COVID sessions, um, would not have, would continue to not be sufficient for the treatment that I require. And without that ability to afford it, I would not be able to have written this quarterly essay. I would not have written any of my books. I would not be the parent that I'm very proud of being, the friend and, you know, wife that I'm proud of being. And so, you know, I, I think that mental health care is inextricable from our support systems in getting us there and finding, you know, the, the right one. And Mo- that's not the common story. The common story is that people fall through these gaps. Mm. And I think like everything I've written, I, maybe I only have one story. I think maybe all of us only have one story and it comes out again and again and again in different ways. But I think to date, m- most of what I've written is about grief. And, you know, the perspective that I look at through the lens of this perspective, mental health care in Australia through the lens of grief, is really a simple story of you cannot heal what is not acknowledged. And that's true on a personal level. It's true on a relational level. And socioculturally, it's true of the origins of the stigma we have. You know, she'll be right, toughen up, you know, get over it. When it comes to this roadblock for many of us saying, being comfortable saying, are you okay? but not comfortable saying, actually, I'm not okay, (laughs) you know? So I was really curious about why we have this stigma, where it comes from, what function it serves that we continue to, you know, give it oxygen. 
And I really was coming back to this theme of grief. When you, you know, when, when you came to do this, this work and start to explore the, the gaps, how do you, I mean, in mm. the past, your, your work has, uh, when it comes to trying to tell a story, you, you, you've taken different perspectives. Like one, one of your books, mm. you took six different people and you told a kind mm. of similar story through six different journeys because that's a tricky thing about, you know, mental health uh, at scale. It's very hard to do. You can't have one <laughs> thing for everybody. It's that's really got to be a tailored treatment, pre- treatment plan yeah. for the individual person. How did you go about finding people to tell this story with? So, you know, you have to cast the net pretty broadly. They say uh, some, you got to go through a lot of milk to get the cream. So I, you know, uh, with all of my work, because I write uh, creative nonfiction, I need real stories, real people to be willing to share their experience with me. I never pressure anyone to allow me to interview them. If they're not into it, it won't proceed. And if they're into it, but I can't get the required depth um, to have kind of the insights that I would like to have, or, you know, the duration with them that I'd like to have to see their character change over time or react in different circumstances, then, you know, we're not going to go to the the distance. I have to like working with them. They have to like working with me. Uh, So it self-selects someone um, who's open in that way. Uh, and for this quarterly essay, one of the main people that I was sitting down with, uh, a few times to hear their story was this 21 year old woman named Eliza, who has borderline personality disorder and, you know, kind of, it was modeling in her daily life, such exceptional, uh, strength and like an everyday resilience that I just found startling. So I found her through Berry Street, where she works um, as a lived experience consultant. And that is not a position that I was very familiar with before this research, but it is um, in this context, somebody with a lived experience of dealing with the mental health system or the housing system or the correctional system, uh, education, etc. The guy on the tools who can tell you how the machine isn't working. Because part of the problem with the system that I learned through her and others that I interviewed was that it's designed by people who don't use it uh, with no input from people who, who, who do. And so uh, that, you know, that was a very powerful insight that she gave me. And that's, that's really the, the problem that I, um, you know, we were talking about earlier is that the mental health system in Australia, for the most part, everybody wants to do the right thing. I'd like to think... I'd like to think that people mm. in power, people in Canberra, people in, in hospitals, people dispensing healthcare, they want to do the right thing. They mm. want to help others. Yet, as you said, it's a system designed by people who've mm. never had encounters with the system mm. um, and never spoken to people who, who use the system. And you'd never, you wouldn't do anything without that. You know, you wouldn't <laughs> build a dance school without talking to a dance teacher. Oh, you need a stage. But- yeah, it's probably a good idea. Yeah, change rooms. I didn't think of that. You know, <laughs> it's important. You know, it's it's, it's su- important. That yeah, absolutely. But I think like that's not even the problem either, because that kind of evidence-based policy is less controversial. I can't even believe I'm saying this. That is not the norm, but it's less controversial than it was, say, 15 years ago in yeah. government. 
I worked for a number of years at the Victorian Department of Justice. I worked at the Federal Attorney General's Department in Canberra. So I have some experience of the inner workings of government. And I think where we are now, you know, looking first to what experts in the area say say is fairly uncontroversial. But the problem is that we continue to be a society and the pandemic is the perfect example of this or climate change uh, or mental health where we are happy to support the politicization of fact, which is a scary thing. And we have always known that fact alone doesn't move the world. So, I mean, when we talk about it at the level of issues, yes, everybody in Canberra, every politician would say people in need for health treatment, mental or physical, should have the support that they deserve. So at the level of issue, we're not so divided. It's then how we politicize it, how we use it for personal gain or clicks or likes or, you know, funding or, you know, political donations or what have you, that the abstraction of it starts to become problematic. You mentioned the pandemic. If there's one thing that um, we do tend to respond to, it's economic pressure, which mm-hmm. is we're absolutely playing out in the energy uh, sector at the moment. Yeah. And un- unfortunately, it breaks my heart that um, this is what it was, but it wasn't until renewable energy became cheaper that people went, oh, okay, I guess we'll invest in that. And yeah. it's shit, but that's where we are. So you know, I see it playing out right now. They're running ads all over the TV and I open up my YouTube and there's an ad there going, the government wants to give you a free flu vaccine. Now, flu vaccines aren't cheap, all right? They all cost money and the dispensation of it costs money. Yet the intervention, the investment in the intervention on that scale, I'm talking millions and millions of doses mm-hmm. and hundreds of thousands of people put in, in, injecting those vaccines into people, which will, will save probably, I don't know, collectively a year's worth of productivity. Mm. And that's an economic mm. bottom line that someone's gone, that's a good idea. Let's va- let's mm. get everyone sorted out against this flu vaccine because also we can't risk the hospital system getting smashed and, mm. and we, we can't figure that out. So there is somewhere there's a place for, unfortunately, it's going to cost us more money if we don't do this, so let's do this. Um, when you have a look at where we are in the, we have a, a public health system, we have people coming into parliament who are trying to put men- big mental health changes into Medicare. Mm. Um, what what do you see? Like, let's talk to the numbers thing. Like, currently where we are, what's the, I guess, the economic burden of the current mental health system of, like, perhaps not identifying when someone's a teenager or younger mm. something and teaching that person's ways to deal with how their brain is wonderfully different and will, you know, perhaps give them a brilliant career versus, oh, here we are now, you know, 15 years later and, you know, we're employing seven lawyers and a court system and we're going to have to, you know, pay for this person to be in prison for 10 years. I mean, one, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm throwing you up a Dorothy Dixie here, but I'm interested to know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I uh, like, and the answer isn't so straightforward because the 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 short answer is we lose, and the Productivity Commission did a mammoth report into exactly this question in 2020, and found that you know we lose literally billions of dollars by not fixing the system, in lost productivity and all you know the follow-on consequences of people being unable to work and also needing treatment that is delivered only when things have gotten to crisis point, um, rather than early intervention that keeps people in education and community uh, earlier on in their lives. So we have that example, we know that. But 
you know, the kick in the nuts, if you think in terms of a neoliberal model, is that if we use that as the carrot for change, we are we allowed to swear in this podcast? Fuck yeah. Okay. <laughs> if we use that as the carrot for change, we're fucked. Because we know that paradigm shift shifts don't occur in sociopolitical systems that are saturated with disparity. So justifying the need to do this better because it's going to be immediately of economic benefit is actually part of the problem. The stigma that we have that's so prevalent in this country that kind of all of us with mental illness um, or who love somebody who has a mental health issue will have experienced it is, you know, the function of a stigma is to maintain social hierarchies. So there's a reason why people who are suffering um, from mental ill health, who also are marginalized for other reasons of gender or race or socioeconomics, they do it much harder. And so this is a system, again, where, you know, the public health system is vastly different from the private when it comes to mental illness, uh, where housing issues and educational issues are, you know, make compound our poor health. And so people lower down on the socioeconomic ladder have a completely different universe of mental health care from people higher, higher up. And so if we justify change according to that same system that has gotten them and kept them there in the first place, we are fucked. That's the really hard part. I wouldn't want to be part of this new government, probably the most refreshed government since Whitlam got in probably um, uh, in the 70s. So they got elected but they stand on top of uh, just complete, like a Gordian knot of bureaucracy <laughs> of people yes. who are, you know, 58 and they're like, mate, I'm 712 hours from retirement. If you think I'm going <laughs> to fucking do an extra minute, fuck yes. you. I, you know, yeah. I'm working these flex here. I'm, you, know, you know what I mean? Like just thousands of public servants who are like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I've been here for 30 it's years. True. I'm not about to change in a hurry. That's terrifying. You're like, how are you going to get it's, anything done? It's terrifying as well. And while, like, for those of us who wanted to see this government in power, yes, the story of this election is a happy one. But the other story uh, of how close it was and how we mm. were not assured at all of this outcome and how many people did not vote for this outcome is also kind of an intractable reality of the level of social division that we're dealing with in Australia. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. But I think it is definitely better than what came, came before. Yeah. Although you could put a shoe in, the, in government and that would have been better than what came before. But, yeah, no, it's, we'll take, I'll take it. As someone who has, a, I guess, a background, in, as someone who has a background in both America and Australia yeah. and, is, and is uniquely placed to culturally observe um, the, the nuances of, of both countries, what role do you think the lack of uh, a solid public mental health system is playing in uh, the erosion of our ability to have a public conversation and, mm. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, be, be able to just agree on a fact and then talk about yeah. how we, what are we going to do about this fact rather than, no, that fact doesn't exist. Like what, oh, what, well, what, I know it's complicated, but I'm just wondering if you yeah. have any, any take on that. Yeah, I mean, we're in a much better position than America, I think, uh, when it comes to commonly agreed social realities. 
you know, America may be beyond saving at this point, given that Matthew McConaughey was the best person to talk about gun violence, Uh, not to take anything away from Matthew McConaughey. But, you know, if they're still thinking that this problem is a function of statistics, people not knowing the statistics. So I don't think we're so far gone um, as all that. But I think we're definitely moving away from notions of the common good that before, you know, Whitlam, you mentioned, but even before that, in Australia, since the Second World War, kind of we could all agree on uh, minimum standards of education and healthcare and transport and all the rest. Of course, that always happened against a backdrop of the, one of the most punitive and exclusionary immigration systems in the world. It happened on top of egregious and continuing colonial violence towards the displaced Aboriginal owners of the land. And so there were those always those two realities happening alongside each other in Australia. But I think we've reached the point where if we don't fix what's happening at even before COVID, so add in the additional stress that all of us are feeling from, you know, the mind-breaking impacts of social isolation mm. and all this is something that will cut across kind of privilege. It will cut across class. Yes, you can ameliorate it better uh, and more with money, but not entirely. And so I do think it has the capacity to kind of be a unifier in the way that other issues have shown um, have not have not basically. And and that I think you know you you mentioned the stigma earlier, but I think we're on the pathway to kind of showing that your your brain doesn't care how much money you earn or what school you went to. Mm-hmm. If your brain just suddenly decides, mm, actually, no, I'm going to be terrified of the daylight and it'll feel weird and you'll be f- afraid to tell your friends and it doesn't care. Suddenly you're <laughs> that man or woman who can't go outside and I'm surely we can all agree that, you know, that person might have, as you mentioned, that person might have really wanted the coalition to get back in. But I know, yeah. I mean, I'm, it's not me personally, I, I understand that everybody thinks they're doing the right thing and that's fine. But I also yeah. want people to not be suffering and not be in pain because when people are suffering and when they're in pain, they, you know, that's when we can start to do things that we, we regret and we can really cause a lot of dam- damage, I guess, um, for, for people uh, around us. You, you, over the course of, of, of the book, as I mentioned, you tell the story through three different lenses. Now, for people who've never, gratefully never, had to experience the, yeah. um, you know, an interaction with the mental health system in Australia, certainly the public side of things, w- what's the journey? What's, what's, a, what's a good version of the journey? What's the best thing you could hope for? What's it look like? Uh, the best thing is that, you know, you have sufficient social connections that get you into the right form of care and support at the very start of the experience of mental unwellness. By that, hang on, by that, do you mean like there's enough people, like I don't live alone, there's enough people who care for me to go, mate, we're really, you know, we're really worried. About, can I take you to the doctor? And then, oh, the doctor's saying you need to go here. Can I take you? Can I drive you? Is it, are you talking that sort of thing? Well, I'm kind of talking broadly about anything that functions um, to as a holding environment. So whether it's relationships or whether it's your socioeconomic status or whether it's, um, you know, the uh, educational environment that you find yourself in or the work environment that you find yourself in, 
whatever kind of relational supports you have and also other supports that can get you or connect you to professional support before it starts to get worse because it will only compound and become harder and harder to address, not just the mental uh, or medical state alone, but the flow-on effects of inability to work, you know, inability to, um, you know, maintain your social networks, all of these things compound the illness itself. So ideally you would get early appropriate care treatment or support from a good therapeutic match. And that is absolutely exceptional in Australia today. Uh, if you had a, 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 a rough time, uh, mm. what does the, um, what does what does the journey look like? Does I, I'm guessing that you don't have an interaction with the healthcare system of your own uh, volition. That it's uh, someone perhaps either coming to visit you in a hospital bed or 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 a holding cell. Well, like the best version of the shit version is that the police and the emergency department are the front line and often the entirety of your options, mm. uh, and that is deeply distressing for a range of reasons. Uh, so that's that's the best of the shit options and the shittest of the shit options. Uh, you look at our suicide rates. Yeah, 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 without it, without a doubt. And I, and I think a lot about that. I think a lot about the, you know, people sign up for the police force and they think they'll be catching baddies. What they probably mm -hmm. don't realise is that a lot of it will be just dealing with untreated complex mental illness and they might have never, ever, ever dealt with that before. And, you know, not understand that this, you know, really quite, uh, you know, either aggressive or irrational person in front of them is just someone who's just really sick and will be yeah. fine. Like you won't recognize them a month from now. They just need a shit ton of help right now. This is the, so one of the like long serving police officers that I spoke with for this work uh, said that, you know, the mental health crisis presents, um, kind of most clearly or officially as a call out every 10 to 12 minutes for them around the clock, but wow. that, that they understood it um, more in terms of the domestic violence call outs that are yeah. happening every five to six minutes oh, around God. the clock. Oh my God. So it is very much that we have left uh, no one, like everybody is in charge. This is something that um, I read in one of the other profiles, which was about a intellectually disabled, probably mentally ill as well, um, profoundly impaired 40-year-old woman who was uh, imprisoned for a year and a half because there was nowhere else for her to go, not because she had done anything wrong. And one of the lines in one of those reports was, you know, be everybody was responsible and nothing happened. So because everybody's responsible, you know, no one was responsible. And, you know, we are seeing that in the burden placed on our emergency departments, which was egregious and unworkable hemorrhaging resources before COVID. Mm. Uh, and now, indeed, we're seeing uh, mental acute mental uh, health care wards being closed uh, to support, you know, more pressing uh, physical issues because, uh, brought on by COVID and the flu. Um, but it also looks looks like the overburdening of police and ambulances and paramedics. And this is just a heartbreaking and enraging, I think rightfully enraging situation.
Yeah, we wouldn't, you know, we were, we after, in Sydney at least there was like, you know, heaps of rain on the east coast at the start of the year and in, in our area I reckon on the, on the on you know, the drive or the ride into work, I'd mm. far out, man. I'd, I would dodge 72 potholes, right? But And we kind of demand these should be fixed right now. These things are really <laughs> fucking up my ability to get from here to there. Yet, you know, every person that's affected like what you're describing, that there, mm. that that's you know essentially like a pothole in whatever our system is. It could be the person who drives the bus, it could be the person who delivers your groceries, it could be the truck driver who delivers the cabbages to the woolies, it could be, you know, mm. someone who works at the power station, it could be your doctor, it could be your lawyer, it could be your kid's teacher, it could be anyone, and that it's it's this giant chunk of our society that uh, just so desperately needs looking after. But as Australians, we can do things when we want to. We can buy very expensive submarines when we want to. Um, mm. Where's like what's a re- what's a reasonable amount of <laughs> of spend on this? You know. Well, it's the I think one of the complexities here is that there's nothing. I mean, there is and there isn't a thing called the mental health care system. So, yes, we absolutely need to train more mental health care, psychiatric nurses, doctors, support staff. They are, you know, egregiously understaffed, regardless of where you find yourself in. Services need money to, you know, implement evidence-based treatments. And we need more uh, psychiatrists, particularly in regional areas, we need more psychologists everywhere, child psychologists. So all of that is a, ma- is a matter of throwing money at it and implementing what we know in terms of service design and implementation. Like, that's fine. But without investment in housing, without teacher training and resourcing to identify when problematic behavior signifies that a child is in distress rather than the fact that this idea that they should be, you know, expelled. Teacher training and support, housing, um, you know, job assistance, Centrelink, all of these things coalesce to make uh, mental health worse in this country. So it's not just a matter of fixing the quote-unquote mental health system. It's relational across all of our public institutions. It's embedded in each of these public institutions and it manifests in, you know, millions of different ways, most notably and intolerably domestic violence, Mm. much offending. We know um, that much of it, much offending is driven by drug use and much Mm. drug use is a self-medication because people weren't given appropriate intervention. So crime, domestic violence, um, th- these are the, the areas which will, will become, you know, increasingly intractable and that are pushing us kind of in, a, in an American direction where we had more of a social democratic ca- care for the common good. Um, now we're not so much heading in that direction. So there's a very long way of not answering the question, but I think addressing it would look like a very collaborative uh, relationship-based yeah. approach across all these areas of government. It seemed like uh, in, in my time from working with Sane, you know, I just I did see mm-hmm. that the the gap between what uh, the public health system was able to do and what people actually needed was often filled by either non for profits or charities um, yes. or things like that, and that 
in, in itself was a very disparate thing because there was a lot of overlap and the Venn diagram of who does what, you know, there's a lot of double touching and it wasn't really the best and still isn't the greatest allocation of resources. I don't think I'm saying, you know, when, you know, one found, one foundation or one charity does kind of the same thing the other one does, like with the same amount of money between the two of them, if they each picked one thing, like you'd probably get, be able to help heaps more people, you know what I mean? So if, if say, if you're getting up there and uh, say you're the new minister for, for this, uh, Sarah, and you get up there and uh, Albo says, all right then, you're going to need to go on air tonight and you're going to pitch the Australian people, you know, uh, what's what's your big reframe? Like how do you how do you reframe? Is there a big giant reset? Is there a is there a right we're going to break the Lego model completely apart and we're going to put it all back together? Um like what's the what's the reframe we need to start thinking about for all this? Well, I think that it really does start with this experience of stigma. And so, you know, those gaps in our services and sectors that you've just described is is like not limited to that sterile administrative realm. It is embodied between Australians, between people and families and, you know, our work relationships and our neighborhood relationships and all our interactions. Each of these public institutions is just billions of micro interactions. And in each of those interactions, we have the historical inheritance from generations not so far removed from us in which, you know, the colonial enterprise required that anything that could be perceived as weakness or interdependence was anathema because it still carried the kind of, you know, um, well, it was an inherently violent enterprise. So it was a colonial penal system, an open air penal system on stolen land, um, mostly predominantly white male until, you know, well until the, the 20th century. And so we continue to replicate the and that social environment in all of those social exchanges where we don't want to be perceived as being weak or needy or overly reliant on anyone. That would invite, you know, if no longer direct violence, um, you know, some form of uh, devalu- social devaluation. And so without, we can't superimpose change on top of this system. It will require relationship change, which requires personal change. And it starts with what so many of the people who I interviewed for this essay and rural and regional GPs from all around the country, psychiatrists, psych nurses, police officers, um, lawyers, judges, everyone had shared with me times when they were not okay when their kids were not okay, when they had the experience, uh, surprising given the high level of their employment station, of shifting in and out of stigma and being pitied and being questioned and discredited in relation to their parenting decisions or their work decisions because they had disclosed this about their health. So I think that is the key, and that would be something that I would try to model in presenting you know, the, the plan for change. We can't be it if we don't see it, as you mentioned earlier. And so part of normalizing being not okay, making it worthy of, of you know, investment and proper, mm. um, you know, being dealt with properly is making the need for it universal. When I, when I hear you speak like that, one of the stigmas, I think, and it's been, I've been touching on it a fair bit in, you know, in recent conversations I've been having on this show is that, um, you know, I have a, a diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder uh, as one of the, I collect acronyms, as one of the things that I happen to have. Um, <laughs> and people might hear that and go, if it was them or their, you know, husband or wife or their kid, they're like, oh, fuck, that's it, life's over. Well, no, actually. <laughs> um, 
it's just a thing. And it's just my brain being kind of different. And in many ways, I only have the career that I have because I have a brain that does that. Okay. It's just yes. when it goes bad. Um, yes. But, and, but I have been taught by brilliant psychiatrists and psychologists and, yeah. you know, pharmacologists, pharmacologists who've given me the meds <laughs> to allow to learn it, ways to manage it. And yes. I now have an in- incredible life uh, with this brain yes. that does things other people's brains don't do. And it's this idea of like if you're not okay, it, it doesn't mean forever. Like you you can break an arm yeah. falling off your skateboard so badly that your arm, your, you, you know, your knuckles now touch your elbow on one hand. Like that's how badly you can break your arm if you want. Ten weeks later, you're high-fiving someone and when the cast comes off, <laughs> you're okay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But we don't seem to have that same idea around um, being mentally unwell and that, oh, it's permanent, it's forever, you know, this person's forever, you know, been, been tarred with that they're fucked for life. That's it. No, mm-hmm. you give up on mm-hmm. them right now. And that for me, that's a, that's a big part of the uh, what I would love to see as far as the reframing of this is like, no, pe- people can, we can help like just double, triple, quadruple the amount of people who are being vibrant and vital and contributing whether it be economically or otherwise. And, you know, I think particularly since becoming a parent, I I think this notion that, you know, perfection in any area is something that you'd want to foist upon your child, that's an unacceptable uh, thing, whether it mm-hmm. is 100% on your homework assignment or the house has to be pristine at all times or you know, socially, you can never put your foot in your mouth or Mm. your health has to be, we don't expect it of our physical health. No stigma attaches to the cold or flu or what have you. Mm. And yet, you know, despite being as prevalent and as, you know, moral, uh, as free from any moral blameworthiness, we don't offer that towards our mental health. So I think it is important to be the norm is that there really is a spectrum of normal functioning and brains are all different. And like you said, and it's something that my husband regularly reminds me of, you can't go cherry picking from the brain that you have, which has given you the life that you have. And so, you know, having these experiences and all of that kind of um, distress, often darkness or what have you, is the thing that kind of unlocks so much understanding, so much empathy and, um, and it, in many ways, it's not just makes us who we are, but it can it can be a gift, not to silver line it, but you know it comes with other with other insights that are valuable. And I, I work in the creative industry, right? There's there's definitely people in mind, and I'm probably one of the people who said this shit about me. They're like, oh no no, they, you know, oh yeah, look, when they're on, they're on, and all oh, that other stuff, it kind of comes when they show up. All right, so we're, oh. as long as the balance is okay, as long as you, your value add outweighs the, the oddness of your presence, you're usually okay. <laughs> like as someone who's played in bands and been around music and the music industry and now television and like, man, I've, I've met creative directors. I'm talking men in their 50s with grey hair that wear T-shirts and, and van sneakers and the odd cats, <laughs> all right? And then, but then when, when they hit go on whatever it is they're good at, you just go, oh, fuck, of course. All right. Oh, yeah. that's, uh, that's uh, right. Because you don't get to have that kind of creative brain without, you know, you know, it just doesn't, one doesn't. It comes with the air. It comes with, ter- like, you find me an Olympic athlete that doesn't have some level of OCD about them. It's just yeah. not going to happen. Yep. You know? This is, I have used my hypervigilance for good every day in my career. I don't think I could do my job without it. Um, I don't know 
whether it serves me particularly well um, some of the time. But yeah, no, we, that's true in every profession that I've been in in my life so far. It's definitely true in um, publishing and writing. It's, it's true in law. Um, yeah. <laughs> You, you've clearly, a, a, you know, a very, uh, you, you oscillated a, a, a pretty intense uh, uh, RPM, you know. Uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't accidentally get a PhD nor have the drive to go get one after so many years already of, of university. And your output of, your literary output is, is astounding. What, what is it about your brain that allows you to have this kind of work output at the same time as being in a loving relationship and being a meaningful mother? Like, what is it about <laughs> your brain that allows you to do this? Uh, I don't know. It's a strange, um, I don't know. Uh, well, I don't have the experience of knowing what another brain is like. So with <laughs> that caveat, <laughs> I only see, well, I mostly see detail, Asha. Mm. And so that uh, has brought me a lot of sadness. And it's also a lot of struggle uh, in terms of kind of taking a bird's eye view of things. But it has served me in, you know, the, my work and in, in, whether it's legal or the more journalistic or creative writing. Um, and the thing that I will be, go to my grave most grateful for is that when it's cooperating, my brain is a very fun, safe place for me to be in terms of making connections between things that wouldn't otherwise probably interest normal people or yeah. be useful to anyone else. But I kind of um, enjoy following what 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 thought or image is going to come next or, you know, kind of where it's telling me we should go. Um, which is always in the opposite direction from where the lawyer part thinks we should be going. So, yeah, this is the the brain I was given. It's the engine I have to run. It's the only software I have. But, yeah. you know, it's been a friend to me as much as it's been a pain in the ass. The, yeah, the, the, good, the good part is that we can, we can rewrite code. It can be stubborn, but it can be done. Uh, that's the wonderful that's the thing truth. about neuroplasticity, just knowing that that's there is, is a really, really gave so much hope, gave me so much hope. I didn't believe it at the time, but it's tough. When it's you like magic. Are, you, you do strike me, you mentioned hypervigilance before. Um, mm. It can be a tricky thing to live with. Um, what have you learned about self-regulation? What have you learned about downregulating? You're, you know, you're a person who would probably go on quite a number, you're very obviously quite successful as a lawyer because your ab ability to think tangentially, uh, whether it's for your client or against your client, it goes to disaster scenario like that and you're able to plan out every single, you know, that's that's what makes great lawyers. Though to rein that in when you need to, uh, you'd, you'd need to know how to do that because going through life like that would be, be hard. What have you learned about self-regulation? Well, so just first, as a lawyer, I only really deal with paper, not people. So I was always allowed kind of to be like uh, very kept at a desk far away from, uh, you know, the day-to-day -day lawyering. And it was a m much more kind of uh, academic exercise. But with that uh, caveat, I have learned that creative writing and kind of creative creative anything doesn't isn't served by that type a kind of neurotic -y impulse that i still have very strongly which is it's not working let's do it harder let's do it more 
let's you know have a replicable process that we can account for in six minute blocks. Creative work and kind of making any conclusions or any insights worth uh, keeping is a function sometimes of doing it less and allowing kind of the back of the brain to just marinate with all of these parts that are refusing to come together in a neat and timely fashion. So I'll go for a walk with the pram with my younger son, or I will read something completely unrelated to anything I've got to do for work, or I'll cook, or I will, you know, just hang. And none of that is, you know, comfortable if you feel, oh, I should be doing this. I'm, you know, goofing off. I'm not being diligent, blah, blah, blah. That's always the, that discomfort is always a sign to me that I'm doing something right. So, you know, in terms of regulating the hypervigilance, having normal, regular work times and lots of times for not doing anything but being, um, which is, I think, uh, a lesson for a lot of us who have kind of hitched our self-worth to productivity or outcomes. Um, And again, we're not going to be comfortable with that stuff. And that's going to be the sign that you're doing it right. So I've learned about, I've learned uh, when I feel like I've got no time for the meditation, no time for the yoga, no time for the walk. uh, That's when I have to do all of those things. Um, And if it means that I'm not going to be ticking all the boxes, well, fine, because I've managed to pull it out every single time so far. And I'm 43 this year and it'll probably be able, it'll probably be okay work-wise. And if it's not, (laughs) it's fine. I'm not a brain surgeon. No one's going to (laughs) die. Man, you just absolutely—it's wild. You know, I hear you saying that, and I—it it reminds you. Well, it reminds me of something that I was—I was told when I was uh, first, you know, dealing with um, after I got sober. When I was dealing with you know social anxiety, that I know how to deal with, and you know, without beard or my beard blanket to protect me. And it was like, if you if you feel like you don't want to go out, that's the sign you should go. Yeah. Just go. Yeah. But I don't want to just fucking go. And it was just doing that. And being, knowing that just by spending time where it was uncomfortable, it made it easier. But I, I also love that you, you was like, and it was the same with running. If I didn't feel like going for a run, ah, that's means I should run because that's the shit yeah. part of my. That's a shit part of my brain trying to win. You know, it's the it's the it it's the, the the depressed part of my brain trying to win. This is for me. Um, and uh, you know what? Every t- hundred meters down the road, I was like, ah, oh, thank God I did that. I'm happy. You know? I love this. Remember this? I'm doing it. I love yeah. it. But it, every time yeah. you have to, I, in the last year I had started, I have started regular, um, EMDR, which is a trauma treatment that is a neural reprocessing technology, I would call it. Um, and is that one the of the huge hands lessons, in front of the face one? Yes. Yeah, correct. I've had that. And it's really taught me kind of how tricky the brain is in the specific sense that there is so much that is held in the body that for those of us who have, you know, pinned all of our all of our best bets to our cognitive abilities, uh, will be constantly surprised by. But once we kind of invest in coming below the neck, as my therapist says, 
uh, that's where we start to actually heal. And, you know, that's been revelatory to me yeah. because I think my sense of safety and my sense of pretty much everything was an overinvestment in, you know, above the neck. We'll figure yeah. it out. What problems couldn't possibly be thought through? It'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but you reach at a certain point in therapy, the limits of cognitive understanding, you just get it. And if certain problems could be solved by thinking at them, um, we would we would get there much quicker. So kind of investing in body stuff, running, yeah. exercise, yoga, um, sitting and reading, breathing, all of these things. I had to learn how to breathe again. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's wild. The EMDR stuff, I'm just fascinated. The, the breathing thing, mm. I've been I've been talking about on this show quite a bit. I've just been right into polyvagal breathing about the last year and a half or so, which is like, yeah. it's essentially like uh, uh, half the inhale to the exhale. So three in, six yes. out, four in, eight out, five in, 10 out. And because it's a, it's the trick, it's the hack essentially I'm not Tim Ferriss, but it's it's a way to stimulate your vagus nerve and turn on your re relaxation response, which is fascinating. But I, the idea of the EMDR stuff that, hang on, there's something in our physiology, something from our evolution that through the, you know, the neurobiology or optic nerves, we're able to reprocess shit in our brains just from the ways our eyes move. Fuck. <laughs> like, I love that. It is. <laughs> and it's a strange magic, isn't it? And that the idea that what moving forward, actually physically moving forward, does for our ability to process stuff, is mm. is am amazing. And that there's all these like it's not just sitting in a chair and talking to someone as therapy. You know, there's a lot no. to be there's a lot to be done. And you know, when it is done in kind of a relational therapeutic context, all the better. I mean, that kind of mm -hmm. somebody giving you the permission to be that support for yourself. Oh, yeah. You know, I've got uh, so much of a emotional vocabulary through that, so much better, made me a better parent, better partner, everything. But I think, and what I was hearing, like from not just therapists, but nutritionists and, um, you know, doctors, people with lived experience of this was that so much of what we kind of address through different doorways is really just a question of, building up a nervous system. And we don't think about that. But, you know, when we look at the old language of nervous shock or, you know, mm. the nerves or all of these things, when we think about how, even if you take out relational dysfunction or, you know, things that have happened to us in our social environments or schools or families, take all of that away. Just the world that we live in now the effect of this constant stream of white hot information at all hours of the day, work, demands, everything, all the time, just blasts open what we were kind of equipped to deal with. So like, I like that question, like, what do you do to kind of downregulate? Because if we had more literacy around that, I think we wouldn't have so many kind of people just exhausted all the time completely <laughs> flattened by everything yeah and unable to deal with you know normal life stuff just a moment away from my chat with sarah krasenstein to uh remind you that dad pod is out and we'd love to hear your thoughts you know it's a really fun episode this week as well charlie and i adore making the show and, and even if you haven't been a dad before or you hang on i'm looking at a baby monitor and i'm seeing it Hang on. Are you asleep? Are you awake? Sorry. This is Babe Wolfus Interruptus. I know I'm supposed to be throwing to an ad break here, but... Oh, he's coughing. 
poor little bastard had croup the other day. It scared the shit out of me. He was really reluctant to sleep today, so I had to, I, like, I never, never, ever, ever do this. I put him in the car. And we went for a, where are we going, Dad? Just going to go look at some stuff. Where, are we there yet? No, I'm not going to get the car. I'm just going to look at some things. Where are we going? Just to look at some stuff. What's there? Is there a park there? No, we're just going to drive around and look at some things. Yeah, six minutes later. Out. Okay, buddy. He's settling. Okay, cool. Can't keep going. <laughs> what was I telling you about? Oh, yeah, please listen to Dad Pod. <laughs> Way more of that baby talk. And um, if you want to support this show, the, the very best way you can do it is to tell a friend, share the show, text someone, chat someone, let your Uber driver know, whoever. Just let them know about this show. Uh, a more meaningful way is to, you know, if you value what you get out of this show and you'd like to repay that value, just jump on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osher, O-S-H-E-R. And you can get ad-free episodes. There's also full video episodes in the pipe. There's some up and there's more coming. We'll get back to Sarah in just a moment, but until all that Patreon money comes flying through the door, here's some ads maybe. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'll tell you what we do. We, we take everything you've learned about the f- downfalls of our mental health system in Australia and mm. we Trojan horse it into the mainstream <laughs> by going, oh, no, no, this is going to be, uh, you know, grade 10 PE is just going to be um, uh, eating right, sleeping right, moving your body, mm. um, processing emotion, and, and that's phys ed because we're going to teach you about your own physiology. And that's how oh, we that's how we try to horse it into into society. But I think I mean so much of it in terms of kind of the possibilities and the kind of the shortfalls of our current educational norms. Again, through having children, became apparent to me. I did a report for the Sentencing Advisory Council here in Victoria um, a number of years ago now about child sexual assault, and it occurred to me that. We don't teach privacy literacy at all or to the degree that would be required where we do in our schools. And how, and Eliza, who I interviewed for the quarterly essay, had said to me that, you know, she wasn't aware that she was, her family was homeless as a child because what's normal is just normal. Um, She wasn't aware that she had been sexually assaulted or the victim of, you know, domestic assault. And once she had the language for it, 
instead of distressing her, it was hugely um, comforting to know that, you know, other people had gone through this. There was language for her Mm. for it. It wasn't her being dramatic or, you know, negative or any of these things. So I think absolutely, if we teach and the language I use for my older son is how do how 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 are we going to be friends to ourselves? How are we going to be a friend to ourselves? And he's got to see me doing that in order for him to do that. We can talk about it, but you know he's got to actually see what rest looks like, what saying no to unsafe people or places looks like, what um, you know healthy environment looks like. All of these things can we model? Can we be friends to ourselves before in order to be good friends to each other and good parents and all the rest? So schools, absolutely. Yeah. As, as you were putting this work together, is there is there is there something that gave you hope about the the mental health system in Australia? Well, I think this idea that at the end of the day, there's kind of nothing independent of us. There's no system or service, or program, or failure that's independent of a person making a decision or carrying out a duty within a you know dysfunctional system, or there are people. So while I wouldn't characterize this as a optimistic work necessarily, I think there is a hope at the heart of it, which is that harms relationally created can be relationally solved. And I have a huge faith in that. Of course, before it can be, it requires deep personal introspection and work, which we're not good at. But I think, you know, can I bring this back to The Bachelor? Um, The way we see younger people speaking to each other, the emotional intelligence in their conversations, they're just normal modes of speaking, what they won't tolerate anymore. All of that gives me great hope that things are going to be done better than we've managed to do. Right. I see it. I see it not only in the, the, the people that I work with every day. I see it in my eldest. I see the way her and her mates yeah. relate to each other and the language they use. Mm. And it's like, oh. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy. <laughs> I, I, I grew up with other guys. It was a punch in the arm and that was it. Um, I was like, wow, you guys are really... You're on top of this. This is good. Uh, I hope I, I'm. I know you are right. And whoever yeah. is has the job once Parliament gets back to sit in. Whoever whoever has the job of trying to <laughs> make it a little bit better. It's a heck of a challenge. But um, look, it's worth it's worth it for all of us. And you know the idea that how much greater our country could be if we, you know put people out into our community that had a little more resources around these sort of things. Because, mm. um, you know, I wonder what we're missing out on, what stories we're missing out on, what what recipes we're oh. missing out on, what what other ways of looking things we're missing out on because there are people that have fallen um, and didn't get the, you know, the help up that others did. I, I, I'm one of them. I got lucky. I got real lucky. I was unemployed at the time and I got mm. caught by the mental health system in Queensland when I was 19. And I, I sh- when I was getting ready for this chat with you, I, was th- I shudder to think where I'd mm. be had I not yeah. gone to that clinic. And, you know, I don't know how much time you've spent in an outpatient clinic, but it's a room full of people who, look, let's be honest, showering is the last thing on their mind. And, yeah. you know, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's an intense, intense place to be. But I, you know, as weird as it was to go off, I'm, I am sitting in the seat next to these crazy people. Um, <laughs> oh, shit, I guess that makes me one of them. Uh, it was like 
it's better to be here than not be here. And I was lucky in yes. that the help-seeking behaviour was instilled in, in me by my folks so I knew that it was the right thing to do was to go and get help with this thing I couldn't cope with. Um, and yeah. I just, yeah, I, I'd like to think that the... Uh, Whoever gets, whoever has the job, does does their bloody best. I know they will, because we're all going to well, going to benefit for it. I think. I think that, and, and like th that description of that room. I mean, you know, the the most important thing is this, just to just throw in the bin this notion that there's us and them when mm. it comes to this. Oh. That we're all them, yeah. or yeah. it's all us. Yeah, there's no such thing. And so, you know, I'm watching this government with. Uh, a certain alarmed optimism because of yeah. the uh, boat that has already been publicly turned back because yeah. one of the other things I write about is how no stigma is separable from all other stigmas. <laughs> so we cannot have something like yeah. the religious discrimination bill with its Orwellian name or a, you know a, a publicly paraded turning back of the boats and expect to reduce stigma in the area of mental health. We all have, there is no unchlorinated area of that pool. So yeah. we really, you know, we'll be looking across all, all portfolios yeah. to make sure that people are treated with minimum standards of decency and respect. Because, you know, again, if, if we can't do that, we're not going to fix this. Oh, tell us how it just comes, to me, it comes down to leadership. It just, again, it's yes. modeled in the leadership. It's modeled in yeah the person whose the name and face you associate with, well, they're in charge. And if that person yeah. leads with compassion and empathy, then yeah. that that becomes the, you know, that's the default. Yeah. Unfortunately, we haven't had that in quite a long time in our country and uh, mm -hmm. it'll be a challenge for whoever uh, is on the mic for the next couple of years. Um, Sarah, <laughs> I, you're the best uh, ever and I have uh, Wolf's <laughs> coming back from daycare in eight minutes, so I have to pack all this shit up we both have a wolf <laughs> i have a wolf we have a wolf gang do you have a wolf gang oh uh, no we just have wolf straight up straight uh, wolf well there you go we have a, we have a wolf gang wolfie or wolf what do you call him he's wolfie wolfie yeah yeah he's wolfie but he's when he, he he's wolfgang when he's like wolfgang he gets the it's a because we were like we're gonna need a hard consonant in there for when he's naughty <laughs> wolfgang <laughs> all right all right thanks Ash. That was Sarah Krasnerstein, and I really, really want you to go check out her books, The Trauma Cleaner, The Believer, and her work in, I think it's the most, second most recent quarterly, the quarterly essay that came out not too long ago, but the uh, quarterly essay is called Not Waving Drowning. It's a very intense, but it's a very important thing to read. You can find Sarah online, De La Sarah, D-E-L-A-S-A-R-A-H. She's also on Instagram, S-A-R-A-H-K writes, Sarah K writes, and Sarah Krasnstein. All the links I'll put in the show notes. Thanks heaps for listening. I hope you're doing okay. Thank you so much for Bree Steele, who researched uh, this episode, and uh, Andy Ma, who cut up the episode, and uh, Toe Hider, who made all the music for this episode, and of course, Rachel Barrett, without whom I basically would just sit around in my house wondering what I'm supposed to do today because she tetrises my calendar and then follows other with text and phone calls going, you do realise you're supposed to be somewhere. Oh, shit, sorry. She's amazing. So thank you, Rachel. All right. I'm going to see if I can't quietly, quietly put some pasta on the pot, make some food. I know it's 10 at night, but I'm hungry, dude. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 